0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the Spring 2015 Distinguished Speaker Series here at UC Santa Barbara. I'm very, very proud to announce our sponsor, Binek, Faber, Archbold, and Spray. I'd like to give them a hand. Very appreciative for their financial support. It's great recognition for this program, which is being watched by millions of people across the globe. Um, And it's wonderful to get a little bit of financial support to bring in speakers even beyond California. So we're very, very happy to have them on board. I am John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter at at John Greathouse. Pretty easy, pretty simple. I'm only going to tweet about startup things. No rainbows, no cute kittens. Tonight, we have Dan Engel, who is a serial entrepreneur. His bio is already exhausting for me to even think about having to read it, um, but I will do my best. I will start from the end and go to the beginning. From 2005 through 2015, Dan had co-founded, and he was the CEO of Fastspring, which was a next generation commerce, payment, merchandising, and fulfillment platform for software products. It is one of the fastest-growing companies um, in the L.A. area, and it was named the 13th fastest-growing company in North America. currently has over 2,200 clients worldwide, including some very large software companies, Adobe, Toshiba, Random House, American Heart Association, etc. And we'll talk about the exit that uh, Dan um, ended up uh, um, pulling off there. It was quite impressive. So before that, he sold a company to a small company that you might not have heard of, I think it's pronounced Goggle. I'm not sure. Um, maybe it's Google. He sold a company to Google before they went public. Um, that was um, The company was called Picasa. He was the marketing manager at that time and, and worked on building. Oh, excuse me. He was the marketing manager once Google acquired them. And he worked on building up another small product called AdSense and another one called AdWords. Never heard of them. I don't know what Google does. Um, when, <laughs> Picasso today is an unbelievable property. It's the largest online photo destination with over 7 billion photos, which is bigger than Flickr, um, and they get over 50 million unique monthly visitors. So that's quite a good acquisition. You know, a lot of times you'll hear about a company buying something, and then it, it just dies. and they, no, they never use it, they never use the technology, and it just sort of, it's a bad deal, it's a bad purchase. Clearly, Picasso was not a bad deal uh, for, for this small company called Google. Uh, Before that, in 2005, Dan co-founded CPC Search, um, which was an online and paid search consultancy service company that worked with a number of companies, including Microsoft. Uh, Before that, he was a co-founder, of, kind of concurrent with that, I should say, because Dan's the kind of guy that's always got several things going at once. He also co-founded a company called Morpheus Software, which was one of these cool, you probably saw it when you were growing up. It was one of those cool tools that would change your face, like you could put your face in there and then run the Morpheus software and it would, it would morph it and do fun things with it. Um, one of the videos they received, um, one of the videos they created of a cat or a kitten got over 50 million YouTube views with the time. It was one of the leading YouTube videos uh, back in the dark ages of the internet when 50 million views was a lot. Um, before that, he worked with me. He was lucky enough to work with me Um, at a company called Expert City. I was actually lucky to bring on somebody like Dan. We were at the point where we needed to understand the internet, and we did not have that DNA inside of our company. So I hired two former CEOs of internet startups, and Dan was one of them, and Dan just killed it. In 18 months, we were generating over $25 million in recurring revenue. Dan's efforts were very instrumental in us selling that company for about $236 million to Citrix, um, and we had a wonderful uh, ride there together. And before that, Dan was, uh, at the ripe old age of 24, he was signed on as an entrepreneur-in-residence at Idea Lab, which was one of the premier um, incubators back in the, um, the, before the last boom cycle in the early um, 2000s. Uh, great experience for him there. Got to inv- get involved in a number um, of high-profile companies. He's currently unemployed. I'm feeling kind of bad for him. Um, he's actually doing a lot of things. He's not formally employed with, by a company, but he's doing a lot of investing, a lot of angel investing, venture capital investing and he's working with entrepreneurs as an advisor. Like everyone that I try to bring in here, he is a good guy. He's a wonderful family man, he has a growing family and he's trying to actually bring that family back to Santa Barbara because he made the mistake of moving away a few years ago. Let's give Dan a warm welcome. Well, like I said, I'm exhausted. Okay. That was the, and I cut that back. I think you sent me 12 pages of yeah, bio. Right, of course.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for that. I left I the junior
0: it. high stuff out <laughs> and all that other stuff you wanted to talk about. Um, so one of the things that I encourage students to do is get <clears throat> internships when they're in college and to get mentors. You did both. So I want to talk about, uh, we'll get to those, um, um, in time. You, you interned at Merrill Lynch when you were in college and you worked with Jim Magnum, who became uh, a mentor for you. Love to hear how that experience transpired. Students are always wondering how do we how do you get a mentor? That feels weird. Um, and how did that internship help you in your varied career after that? Because you didn't go into the financial services market.
1: Right. I thought I was going to. And so I had maybe five internships by the time I had graduated college. And I just believe in getting an early start. It just gives you an edge on everybody else who's focusing on something else. And then when it comes time for the job market, which is where you spend most of your life, uh, you you, have the, you hopefully keep that advantage and, and continue to stay ahead. Um, so in the case of uh, the internship I had, which I started when I was a freshman in college, and I had it for all four years while I was uh, in school. Um, I'd say you know what I learned from it. I, it, it some of my sort of, I guess, the, some of the values of business. I'd say I learned uh, Jim was just a great guy, and uh, he had a certain way of doing business. I was kind of hokey old, uh, you know. it was in uh, Louisiana. It was a different different way of doing things than I was used to coming from New York. I learned a lot from that, uh, and also uh, I'd say uh, being able to uh, learn how to treat customers a certain way. So. In his case, he was like a, a stockbroker, which they don't have so much of these days anymore, but uh, he had tons of clients. He used to say he was managing more money than all but three banks in the state of Louisiana, <laughs> and he never lost clients because of how well he treated people. And I'd say I carried that all the way through to especially Fastbring, the last business, whose primary advantage was uh, in how it treated its people and how those people thus treated the clients of our company.
0: Well, you also had another... Um I don't know if it was an internship or your first job at Fidelity Investment. So again, that theme of financial services. I imagine you maybe you thought that was going to be your path. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know, you ran into people like Peter Lynch, I mean like icons of that era, Ned Johnson and others. What did that did that experience how let me rephrase it. How did that experience help you in your in your startups and does that experience
1: continue to help you as you're doing angel investing? Um so I would say uh, it helped me somewhat with my career. A lot of what I use these internships for, part of it was learning stuff and trying to learn things before other people were learning it um, who were similar age. Uh, but another part of it was networking mm-hmm. and just being very aggressive to use my internship time to meet all these you know, well-placed people so that when the time came, you know, the job and the future would be set for me or I wanted to get elevated. Well, I knew the people at the different ranks because when you're an intern, you have sort of a... I don't know what you call it, but you've got a special place at the company. Like, you're not really accountable for anything. You're not really responsible. I mean, you are. You get some tasks, but at the same time, it's like... uh you can kind of wiggle your way around and spend your time. Once you get your work done, spend your time with the people that you want to. And often right. they'll pay attention to you. When you show people, uh, especially who have been super successful, they might be veterans in the industry, uh, that you're particularly interested in them and what they do, they often make time for you. We don't expect that, but they do, because people are interested in people that are interested in them. Um, and they want to share their wisdom, and, and they don't get those kind of questions every day. Yeah, I, I I tell that to young people all the time, because oftentimes when you are young, you're thinking, well, what what,
0: what what, do I have to offer to this relationship? Well, what you have to offer is a chance for that person to pass along their wisdom and their experiences. And the older people, especially successful older people, welcome the chance to help a younger person at the beginning of their career. So, you know, and what, and so what? If you hit the oddball that doesn't want to give you the time of day, fine, you just move on from that. But if you don't step out and ask, make that first, you know, um, you know where's Peter or any of these other people that were very well-known at that time, if you're not willing to make that initial entree, then you can guarantee you're not going to get anything out of that relationship.
1: Yeah. Well, my dad always used to say the worst thing they say is no. Right. So why wouldn't you? Right. Exactly.
0: Then you move on. So as I mentioned, Dan was at Idea Lab in the the late 90s. And for anyone that was sort of in the market in that time like I was, I mean, that was like the pinnacle of the dot-com Later, the dot-com craziness, but before that, the dot-com brilliance. Like, they just put money in things that just turned to gold. They had so many opportunities, it just seemed like they were going to be, you know, unlimited wealth creators. Some of them actually did still succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them didn't. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You were in your early 20s.
1: What was it like to be there in the middle of all of that madness mm-hmm. as a young person? Uh, and by the way, Picasso came out of Idea Lab, which is based in Pasadena. I don't know if you mentioned it. Um, So for me, I thought it was a dream job. Uh, My job was at 24 to build and try to IPO uh, internet companies, specifically in the wireless space. And uh, what it was like was, you know, I was getting to spend time with some people that were my heroes. The CEO and founder of Idealab was a guy named uh, Bill Gross, who in the dot-com days was seen as Bill Gates was for many, many years of the internet space. So and as an entrepreneur, I'll never forget some cover he was on of uh, 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 it's Inc. Magazine, uh, reading that, and a lot of entre- other entrepreneurs did too. And he was just, people really worshipped him. And I had the opportunity to work with him and build companies, hopefully with him. Now what happened in reality, unfortunately, is everything kind of crashed. So uh, that didn't last very long. Um, it wasn't the dream job. And i found actually talking to other people too that think, you know, they've taken such and such dream job. A lot of times things don't work out like one thinks. Um, and that's what happened there. Um, but in terms of the experience, it was just awesome to be in the thick of it. A lot of the things I've, I've done in the past, I've been fortunate to be in the thick of. You were mentioning um, Fidelity. So when I was there in 96 or 90, something like that, um, you know, the CEO, Ned Johnson, he, he was on the cover of Time magazine. Mm-hmm. You mentioned because you were, you were following him at yep, that time. Yep. Fidelity was all over the place. It's different now. Um, Oh, you were like twelve? Yeah, thirteen. No, Um, I was uh, between my junior and senior years. And the reason I got that job, so you know, we talk about getting an early start, giving you an advantage. Um, So there was one spot for an intern at Fidelity Management and Research Company. Was the division of Fidelity that was the most sought after? They were managing six hundred billion dollars, something like that, and uh, it was the absolute pinnacle. Um, and their symbol, actually, is the pinnacle. And uh, every year in the past, there was one intern, uh, and it was always somebody from Harvard. And I certainly didn't go to Harvard. I wouldn't be able to get into Harvard. Never heard of it. Um, right. So the way I got that, I, what I did is I got them to open a second slot. And the way I did that in that particular internship is uh, Jim Angham uh, turned out, because I had had those four years with him, his son happened to run one of the big funds, and was uh, best buddies with the person who's now the CEO of Fidelity, Abby Abby Johnson. Um, So again, it was networking through an internship, um, trying to get ahead. That that really got me ahead. And the reason I did those kind of internships is uh, because I thought I wanted to be some big shot in finance. And then during the dot-com time, I decided to change my course. Become a big shot in tech. I suppose. Uh, I... uh, It was a really rare time when uh, a 21-year-old was actually encouraged to start a company of significant size and could raise capital. Things have changed since, and things were never the same before, and uh, it's really a neat time. In fact, if you were 40 years old, like I'm about to be soon, uh, they were not really interested in you, unfortunately. Um, In retrospect, for for not good reasons, but at that time, it was a really unique window in time to be a really young entrepreneur and accomplish a lot. And so I went out and started a dot com and well actually it was ninety seven and I graduated college ninety eight. So um, I decided the hell with it, we'll just go for it and shoot for the stars and see what happens.
0: Yeah. I remember people kept saying things have changed and I kept thinking, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> like you still need to make payroll and sell stuff and all that. Yeah. Thing.
1: When so, you hear that that's that's usually a warning. Yeah, so that's the time to sell. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you were one of the things you focused on at Idealab Lab was I, I kinda laughed when I read this mobile internet. So what was mobile Internet back in the late 90s? I'm sure yeah. we felt at the time that it was, like, really groundbreaking. But, and after this, I'll take the first student question, so if, you, if you're ready.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a whole generation of these wireless Internet, mobile Internet companies. And the reason you guys probably haven't heard about it so much is because the whole thing went to heck. WAP. WAP was part of it, <laughs> yeah. And if, if you ask, you know, a tech historian what happened, so... Um, There was a whole generation of companies specific for mobile Internet that uh, disappeared, and I was part of a few of them. It wasn't very pleasant. But I think part of what happened is we were all sold a bill of goods. So the carriers made a big mistake that, um, you know, Nextel, Sprint, whoever, uh, they were um, showing us this amazing World Wide Web on phones in commercials. And so people thought there was all these amazing capabilities on mobile. And so everyone was investing and jumping in, and this was all going to happen tomorrow. 3G was coming from Japan. Reality was very different. And there really wasn't much of a value proposition, and browsing the web on these devices really sucked. Excruciating. Yes, yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's the whole story, but that's my sense of a big part of why it all failed. And uh, I was part of some companies that, that you know, we tried to build uh, services for large enterprises moving to mobile back then, and... Eventually, they didn't need to move into mobile,
0: Yep. so... Well, it's a technology adoption curve, right? Like, you always... There's that, you know, the, the, the depths of despair and the, and the overhype at the beginning, and you were definitely in that overhype period. A lot of people were. I remember a guy picked me up at the airport right around that time period, and he was so excited that he had a phone that would get to the, the Internet, right? He was driving me into San Francisco. It literally took the entire drive from the airport to get to San Francisco to pull up one web page. Like, dude, oh. that's, that thing you have in your hand is a brick. It's right. not worth much. Yeah. But he was still proud of it. We'll take the first student's question. Hi. Um, In 2005, the issue of levying sales taxes on goods purchased online was brought up when California found it necessary to tax customers who order online but live in the same state as the physical stores. Um, As states press to change the tax laws for these online companies, how did this affect your business's growth in its first few years of helping other companies sell nationwide and worldwide?
1: Well, that's a good question. because so FastSpring, John mentioned a little bit about what it it does. Um, it handles online payments for software vendors around the world. Now it's about I don't three thousand clients. The actually majority of them are outside the U.S. And it's software vendor, software vendors from Adobe on down to just somebody in their dorm room. Um, and uh, one of the function one of the capabilities is handling global taxation for software vendors, so they don't have to deal with when they sell software in Europe and they have to deal with value-added tax or they sell it in California, we would deal with that. We were what's called the merchant of record, and so all the revenue of theirs was our revenue. We had that responsibility. Um, So on uh, the one hand, uh, they were outsourcing that to us, and that gave more reason for them to outsource to us because they didn't want to deal with state-by-state regulations or uh, international regulations. Um, And then on the other hand... uh, we were able to uh, avoid having to deal with that to some extent because we're selling digital products. Downloadable software, downloadable games, software as a service. We weren't dealing much with physical goods, so we weren't subjected so much to California tax issues related to Internet sales. It's
0: definitely a big issue. Um, A lot of folks just aren't reporting it accurately. Not the big companies. The big companies can afford to pay people, but a lot of these folks that are making money as Internet vendors but they're not big companies, it's really tough to track all of those different places where you have nexus. Um, So I think it's a problem that still remains to be solved. Right.
1: And the bigger the problem, the better for for FastSpring, because companies want to outsource that problem and not be responsible for it.
0: Yep. As is a company that I invested in, TaxJar, shameless plug. Hmm. Yeah, they're they're trying to tackle that problem. But it's definitely a problem that a lot of people um, have. So in 2003, we met, or maybe it was 2002, something like that. Um,
1: 2002, yeah, probably. So
0: we had a business model at a company called Expert City that was completely broken. We pivoted to selling what is now called software as a service. Back then, it was called ASP software. Michael Gagnieri is here. He killed it on radio. This guy created the click on the radio microphone, all those radio ads. You, you have him to blame for that. Um, so Michael was killing it on radio, generating tens of millions of dollars for us, and then later on TV, generating even more money. And then um, we had Dan over here on, on the online side. So we had a great team in the early days. We, we, um, we certainly did well. And a lot of, a lot of success in life is you know, really putting the right people around you. Dan was really important because, as I mentioned in the introduction, we didn't really understand the Internet. I mean, we knew it as users of the Internet and that sort of thing. We didn't understand marketing on the Internet. And the reality was nobody did. It was brand new. Like, no one had really figured out how what Michael was doing with radio, how to get people to go from their car into their office, turn on the computer, go to a website, and buy a piece of software. No one had ever done that before. And we cracked the code on that. And Dan helped crack the code on just a variety of other things that aren't even around anymore, but like pop ups and these ads. And we were everywhere. I was getting like, my friends were like giving me death threats. Like, dude, if I see another go to, go to my PC ad, I'm killing you. Because we were everywhere. We had a business model that was working. And that's why we were able to attract talent like Michael and like you, because the world was crashing. So we were one of the top five internet advertisers for almost two years, yeah. spending more money on Yahoo than Microsoft, Oracle, all these other guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. So talk to me about, um, so I have my own memories of that time. I'd love to hear your memories. And then what did you take away from that into Picasa, Fast Springs, some of these other companies?
1: Well, that was a great opportunity that you gave me, because... Um, I was able to try to market this product using a somewhat unlimited budget, and what I mean by that is, any time we could test an ad channel that worked, the sky was the limit, and um, we could really fund it. And so we spent some time in the trenches testing hundreds and hundreds of different channels, and so. We learned what worked and what didn't, how to make things work that didn't originally work, like radio when at first we first tried it, it didn't work, but eventually we got it to work, and you guys may have heard ads on radio. Same thing with television. That was challenging at first. So having that sort of runway to market the heck out of this new thing, which was a really comp- compelling value proposition, yep. and having the financing behind it to be able to do the testing appropriate to... Uh, get millions of people potentially to uh, millions of dollars of revenue to uh, be recurring customers for the service so uh, you know in terms of my experience with you I would say um, you were a great mentor to me in the area yeah, I'm of, not
0: looking for you to couple I know
1: but I, I've said this to other people in the past even when you're not here which is uh, I learned a lot about negotiating well well tell them why you would come into my office uh-huh. how did I go down so I, would, uh, so I would come into your office, and I would say, you know, here's the terms that were being presented, and you would tell me to turn around and present something very different. And uh, in the and end... i wait we can-
0: a minute, Michael's getting me, he's getting me oh, on right. CNN, he's getting me on Fox,
1: and he's bringing in a ton of customers. Come on, man. That's true. You did do that in the beginning. <laughs> um, but uh, I was competing against myself, so I, I wasn't, we I all wasn't too worried about that. Um, anyway, uh, uh, you know, the Expert City experience, uh, it was awesome to be able to be part of being such a large advertiser with a recurring service that became, you know, what's now hundreds of millions of dollars in yep. revenue yep. and very well-known Third product. largest SaaS business, supposedly, after Salesforce and Oracle. Yeah, and also, you know, and you'll find this theme as we talk about some of the things I've done. Uh, and John mentioned he had a model that uh, didn't work initially and then pivoted. Uh, You know, there's a lot of failure behind a lot of these successes. And I remember when John and I worked on the first deals together, when I was involved as well, so post some of the failure they had, uh, we failed as well. And we were like, hmm, we put together all these deals, and they looked great, but it turns out they're not actually generating any revenue. And, of course, we didn't just stop there. Um, We kept going, and we were persistent, and we thought, well, if we keep trying. Um, And another uh, lesson we learned out of that is, despite having this great product, despite having a wonderful lifetime value of each customer, so we could afford to do all sorts of advertising and business development deals, uh, most marketing channels failed. So you'll notice this theme of failure and all this success, and I think it's an important takeaway um, John and I had to have that tolerance to deal with a good amount of failure. And we learned over time that you know, marketing just isn't logical. Things that should work often don't. And stuff that you try that doesn't seem to make sense, like radio and TV for go to my PC, it actually worked. So what did we end up doing? We just tested things. We stopped our, our hypotheses. We stopped trying to think, well, if it was us you know, in the shoes, of the, you know, would that work for us? No. It was, let's just test things. And we had that attitude, and I think we carry that forward today. I think
0: it was very, and of course, I sort of have a glowing recollections, but, but I think when I try to cut through the, the, the um, reminiscing, I think we had a very entrepreneurial way of looking at business. We were willing to take risks. We were willing to try things. And I think back on the team, Big Kibbleger, who went off and had a... Right huge success of his own, at um, least authors, you know, so we had just a great team, and it's that rare moment that I hope all of you guys experience at multiple points in your career where everything is working, like the team's great, the, the, you know, the, not every deal works, right. but you're in an environment where you can fail fast and figure it out and keep going, and that doesn't happen in every job, it doesn't happen in every company. Um, so when you find it, you
1: know, run with it, stick with it. Um, and I would say it certainly made a difference having the runway we did. Yeah. Why did we have such a runway? Because with the original concept, uh, we were able to raise enough money, 20-something million dollars. 32 million. Okay, 32 million dollars. Good thing John's here. Uh, that uh, we were able to just kind of keep going with, uh-oh, the first product didn't work. What are we going to do? Well, it turned out we had the time, we had the runway because we raised more money than we needed. And a lot of companies in that time didn't. Or they did, but they spent so much darn money so quickly that uh, they they lost the opportunity. And what you'll find in business, as my entrepreneurship professor used to say at Tulane, uh, what's the number one reason businesses go out of business? They run out of money. So that's really the game is figuring out how to keep that runway going. If they don't run out of money, what do they run out of? They run out of people that will give them money, and that's different.
0: That's what I tell my students anyway. All right, we'll take the next student's question. All right, I wanted to see if you could uh, talk a little bit about the process for you figuring out or finding direction as you transition um, after being in the the late 90s, like the dot-com bubble, as things were changing there.
1: Uh, Well, let's see. Well, that's when I came out here. I had had enough of the dot-com craziness. I was in Cambridge, Mass. I had my own startup, and we spent two years on it, which at that age felt like it was 10 years. Now it's like two years. What's that? Uh, And uh, it ultimately failed. And uh, I just, the whole dot-com thing was coming crashing from under me. And I was at Idealab as an entrepreneur in residence. And then that went out of, not out of business, but they laid us all off. It was just layoff left and right. And uh, the tech industry, and this will happen again, uh, was not in a recession. It was in a depression. Just like finance in 2008 was not in a recession like everybody else. They were in a depression. And in that time, nothing happens. People stop spending. Companies stop spending. They stop hiring. And you're sort of left there. Uh, If if you're in the industry, you you weren't potentially like an executive that stayed on when you laid off all your people. So I came out here to get a break um, from Cambridge and the craziness there. And out here in Santa Barbara, there was still a lot going on, but not to the same extent. And you could relax at least a little bit. Um, so how I transitioned, um, it actually took me a long time to transition. Uh, I had some really great experience. I had been CEO of a .com. I had been an entrepreneur residence at Idealab. But because of the degree of the depression in technology, I was unemployed looking for a job for five months. And I mean, like, looking every day. Um, so it was a tough transition. Obviously, things worked out, and they will for other people in similar situations. But uh, if one's persistent. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I ended up in a tiny little software startup that made a little photo software organizing product that we ended up selling it to Broderbund, which is a big software company in the 80s, um, and then switching over to working with John, and things just sort of took off from there uh, once once we tried some things out. And some of it was proximity. You were in the same building that I was in,
0: right? right? And there somebody was. said, "Hey, there's this really wily entrepreneurial guy down at the end of the hall there. And you should go yeah. talk to him." So. You know, it's funny because Dan was saying earlier the fact that he was 20, 21, helped him get funding. After the crash, I wouldn't say nobody wanted to touch those guys, but Mm -hmm. that suddenly was not cool. Like, oh, you are a dot-com CEO, and your head's going to be filled with all these misconceptions about what business is about, and you're going to be entitled and all these other things. And so I think another reason why Dan was successful was he was self-aware enough to not fall into that trap. Like, he went from being, you know, CEO of this company with funding and high profile, and then he had to come in and work for me. Like, he had to be part of a team again. And we actually hired another guy, not a bad guy, good guy, actually, who didn't quite work out as well as Dan. And I think it might have been, some of that might have been that Dan was more willing to, to just be a team player and kind of come in. They both had been CEOs of their own startups and during the height of the dot-com. And sometimes it's hard to go from being the CEO to being, you know, moderate-level person. You weren't senior.
1: Yeah. No, of... it was really difficult uh, mentally more than anything. Yeah. And it absolutely is not what I wanted to do. But as I remember it, see, I don't remember that as being in a rub with you. Even no. though it
0: might have been internally.
1: No. Yeah, yeah. Well, at that point, I think, you know, it's what I needed to do. But what I learned going through that is, you know, you go to one extreme and you think the other is completely foreign and not going to be comfortable. And what I learned is actually... Both sides are, are really wonderful in all sorts of different ways. Each has its advantages and disadvantages. And certainly after my first company, which was like uh, Amazon.com for magazine subscriptions was basically the concept, uh, after that failed, um, and I came to, the ter- came to terms with the fact that I needed to get a job, I was really scared of that. The whole paycheck thing, working for, for somebody, was absolutely opposite, I thought, of, of what I wanted. And, uh, but I had to. I had no choice. And it turned out, in retrospect, that there's so many positive advantages to that situation that it almost makes it hard to go back and want to do a startup again. So both sides are good in their their own ways, and, and, and one often leads to the next.
0: Yep, yeah, yeah. And I think I, my recollection is I, I, remembered, I remember thinking, these two guys I'm hiring are former CEOs. I wanted to give you guys a lot of latitude. But if you remember, I did with Michael and Elise and everyone else and Ben, everyone, if they were performing... Um, had as much latitude as they wanted, which is how
1: I did things in fast spring as well, yeah if you hire smart people and they know what they 're doing once they show you that they know how to do what they 're doing, yep. you leave them alone, let them run and uh, i think I think that was probably through you, and then i I carried that forward with my last well i was I
0: I honestly believe I'm a lousy manager, but I'm, I did a pretty good job of hiring people. But I would never say I was a good manager. But if you hire the right people, you don't have to be a great manager. Right. They don't need to be managed. So that makes you a good manager. I'm a good hire, recruiter, person, I think. Not that great. All right. I learned a lot of that from Andreas, by the way. Um, so we sold the company to Citrix. Um, I didn't stay all that long. But this guy beat me out the door. Like, you left, like, the day after. Like, what happened? And, I want to hear about why you left. But, but also Morpheus. So yeah. one thing you'll find with entrepreneurs is we often have several things going in our lives. I think back when I was a kid, I was always had three or four little ventures going. Morpheus was kind of like a side project. Right. And then, so maybe talk a little bit about what, why did you leave the side project, and then how did that lead to going back to? Well, let's stop there, yeah, and then, I'll, then we'll that's talk about ideas.
1: Uh, so why I left is because John and I had this crazy hockey stick of growth. Uh, you know, forty million dollars in revenue from not nothing, but a pretty small base, yep. uh, in eighteen months, and uh, it was getting to a point. There was this new product. Go to meeting. Yep. Uh, things had, the growth had kind of flattened out. We tested so many channels, um, and you know, I need to be excited, and it was very exciting. And it was almost like a drug. It was that exciting of constant, yep. you know, making new deals. Uh, and that that got kind of flat growth and just not nearly as interesting. Go to meeting for a while, and for a while, go to meeting was really hard to market, and yep. I sort of sensed that. Yep. But combined with that, the guys from Idealab came back to me and they said, uh, "We've been seeing what you've been doing all over, you know, the internet, TV, whatnot, with go to my PC." and you know, can you do that for us? Right. And uh, with Picasa, uh, because it was a similar situation. Great product, great PR, didn't know how to market it, weren't weren't getting the revenue, losing money, uh, so I went and did that. And I did, I leveraged a lot of what John and I did for this other product, and we were able to grow revenue like 7x in six months, and then we sold it to uh, Google uh, nine months after I started doing that. Uh, your other question So Morpheus as a site project. So Morpheus... Uh, I did partly out of need because I got to a point where I wanted to start my own thing again. And Morpheus, if I could make revenue from that, was a way to sort of have a springboard to leave the working world again, have some income that I'd feel comfortable uh, doing my own startup where did I had you, those risks. Were you working on that when you were still at Expert City? I started working on that in 2001. So I should have fired you. Uh, mm, no, because no, moonlighting is not illegal. I knew about, it. I, knew about it. I, knew, I knew about it. I'm kidding. Perhaps for other reasons, you should have me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Amorpheus became really popular. So the idea behind that... So basically what I did is I said, well, I've been involved in other companies where we didn't have revenue, and turns out demand didn't, didn't occur... So what I did is I found something that already had demand. Morpheus was this product for image morphing, manipulation, and distortions. You could, like, grow body parts. You could put heads on different, you know, animals' bodies. You could morph images and transform uh, one person or one thing into another. And uh, it was getting tens of thousands of downloads every week. And I noticed that the company behind it wasn't actually a company. It was a person. And he was giving it away for free. So I just sent him an email, and I said, hey, uh, you want to maybe partner? I noticed, you know, you're getting tons of downloads. How many people do you think might buy this? He said, zero. Uh, well, it turned out plenty of people bought it, and this thing we started out that was free, we ended up, and even though it's just for goofing off with pictures, we ended up having an average order size of $65 per order. So we, we took it a real far way, and... Uh, like you mentioned earlier uh, it led to these videos on youtube that got nominated for the youtube awards and got us traction there and we put together a social network um, which was mildly successful and uh, all sorts of other things that it took me and then The back-end system that we built, I sort of custom-built with the developer who was behind Morpheus, became all the knowledge that I had for FastSpring, which is a back-end system for other software vendors like Morpheus. So I find a lot of these initiatives one takes on one's own lead to other things that one can do later, even if they don't work out or don't scale. And Morpheus did well, but it didn't scale the way I had wanted. And you mentioned earlier... That I tend to do a few things at once. Often, that's often that's to diversify risk. So I had Morpheus going, I had CPC Search, and I had Fastprint. Well, good thing I ended up doing the third one, Fastspring, because right. the other two did well right. and they were successful, but they didn't scale. They didn't get into the you know the, the millions that I was seeking. Right. But Fastspring did, and not at the beginning, but over time. Yep. Next question. Uh, so you touched on this a little earlier, but as a serial entrepreneur. How are you able to determine when a particular
0: company in search of a new product or market? And furthermore, how has your time as an entrepreneur-in-residence at Idealab influenced your approach to starting or joining a new venture?
1: Uh, being an EIR at Idealab, you know, that was so short-lived. I don't feel like it had that much impact. And I had been an entrepreneur-in-residence at another incubator before that, and that thing crashed, too. This was a crazy time in technology. Um... So I don't think it had a ton of influence. I talked a little bit earlier. But uh, in terms of being a serial entrepreneur and figuring out when to say when with a venture, uh, I guess for me, fortunately, I haven't had to do that too many times because a lot of what I've been doing at least the last 10 plus years have been really successful. But most of what I did before those, now it's probably 12 years, was actually pretty unsuccessful. Um, but And I did a bad job in the first venture coming out of college. It was very hard to get myself to say say when and move on, um, partly psychological because it was my baby from college and partly because, you know, financial uh, and other reasons too, and I still hoped it worked. But I'd say one thing that turned me off to some of the ventures I was working on when FastSpring took off was they weren't scaling. And I think that's, that's one thing. It's like, look, you have this vision. You want to build a company that's doing... A million in revenue, ten million, 100 million, whatever you're you're aiming for, and when you see that's not happening, you keep pounding the pavement and doing what you plan to do and trying all the different channels of distribution, whatnot, and you're not getting there. You know, I think that's time to 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 look in the mirror and think about it a little bit. Um, So that's that's one of the ways that that I dealt with it. It's always hard. It's always hard to know
0: when to quit because you obviously don't want to quit too soon, but sometimes you can hang on. I'd rather err on the side of hanging on a little too long. So I remember a story you told me um, in the early days of Google. I'd love to hear, I won't name names, but you, this is how I remember the story. Uh, they bought the company, some of the very, very high profile people at Google sat down and said, great, what does your company do and why do we buy you? Is that, uh, is that how, am I remembering it right? And how, oh, what yeah. were the early days of Google like?
1: Yeah, so this is somewhat early, 2004, before the IPO, was, as, as John mentioned. And Google was a bit of a zoo. Uh, they um, didn't have their act together. And by the way, they didn't need to. They were doing plenty fine yeah. being a crazy place. Yep. Um, they didn't, They hadn't done many acquisitions, uh, so they had very little in infrastructure for integrating or doing acquisitions. They were just, I think, starting out their corporate development department, which dealt with acquisitions. Um, and um, I, constant meetings. And I remember that... Um, Marketing people there. So, you know, in a lot of technology companies, they're either engineering companies or they're marketing companies. It's usually one or the other. And Google was absolutely an engineering company. And I'm not talking about what it is today because I'm not there. I don't know. But at the time, so they didn't have much respect for the marketing side of the house. And that meant the marketing side of Picasa coming in, my team. And that meant, you know, I was in charge of all their customer acquisition. And I didn't get much love. Um, They... uh, you know i remember us marketing people would kind of walk around and give each other looks like you know nobody cares about what we're doing this place is is really odd And, you know, obviously, God bless them. It worked out really well for Google. And when you're getting all your users coming for free, things work out usually pretty well. And that continues to work. And when the one product that you have is 90-plus percent of your revenue continues to be an amazing product endlessly, like it has been all these years, you know, you can do things in a way that that isn't always the most sensible from a marketing standpoint and get away with it. And they did. And and good for them. It's worked well.
0: It's probably hard for folks in this audience and young people watching this uh, online to, re- to realize that when Google came out, I mean, everyone thought search was done. Like, people thought search was solved. We weren't sitting around going, God, search kind of sucks. I wish somebody could fix it. I mean, there was tons of search engines, and they all worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. It was it's just a good example of somebody coming out with a better mousetrap. It hardly ever works. Like, usually a better mousetrap, people don't care. But this was one time when a better mousetrap was that much better, and there was other things that happened in the market. They were willing to private label and things like that, where... The engineers won. And usually, though, you need balance. You need the marketing expertise, the sales expertise, and the engineering expertise to pull mm-hmm, it off. Mm-hmm. They're a rare example of, of doing it with maybe one leg in the stool. So 2005, you start FastSpring. I remember talking to you about it. I remember yeah. going to lunch, and we talked um, about that experience. Um, one thing that always intrigued me was as you grew the company, it was an incredibly decentralized company. Right. Even at the end, right? I mean, you still totally. have people all over. So talk a little bit about... The impetus for that, how it worked, and how decentralized it really was.
1: Yeah, FastSpring we did it in a unique way. FastSpring these days is you know over a hundred million dollar business, and it wasn't much less than that when we had about twelve people. And by the time we sold the business, and we did it all, by the way, with thirty thousand dollars, no venture capital. That's it. That's all we used. Um, and in terms of people, uh, you know, we had an approach that had to do with finding the best people and the best fits for the positions we had. And not the best people who happen to be in the same zip code. Yep. And so when we got it at the acquisition point, it was about 22 people. Now it's uh, going to be 45 soon, I think. Um, but out of those 22, I think we had three people in, in Santa Barbara. And everybody else was working generally from home. Some people were in other countries. And even the co-founders. So the co-founder, we had four co-founders, and they were all very essential. I was just one of them. I was the CEO, but we all had our different areas of the business that we were responsible for. One handled all the customer service area. One handled the development of the product. One handled ultimately sales, though I did that for the first few years. And then me uh, doing sales. And then doing other things like marketing and hiring, things like that. We went through, I think, a period of three years during the eight year life cycle of Fastering where those co founders, we didn't even see each other. We didn't even get together once. Um, and we would communicate through email and uh, sometimes phone. Every once in a while, there's something really important. We'd just get on the call. Now, you can't do that in every situation, but if you have the right kind of people who just you know they're not looking for a fight they're easy going laid back like let's just make a decision mm-hmm. uh you know and in this case all four of us had been ceos before so we kind of knew what we were doing and we had the division of labor pretty strong so it's like i said earlier he had this section i had that section so we all and i didn't need to know about what they were doing in their areas they know what they're doing yep so and then they would have people under them um So that's how we did it. And it worked really well. And one of the... What does the company look like now? Has it become more centralized? Well, yeah. So uh, the folks who bought the company uh, have decided that because they want to make the company sell for a lot more later and be a more sustainable and substantial company... They, don't, they want to have most of the people be in the same place, which is they've decided Santa Barbara, uh, which makes a lot of sense because when we went through the process of trying to you know, raise money at one point and take some money off the table and sell the company, we did run into potential partners, buyers, whatever, that would say, oh, well, I really don't like that the company is spread out over the place. But uh, it, ultimately, it didn't matter, but there certainly were some that were turned, out, turned off. And I think the larger that you get the harder that argument gets because right. then you've got more money, bigger firms. They want stability. They want to be able to control things from a single place. Um, but it was actually turned out to be a huge advantage for us. Um, we gave our people an, a very large amount of flexibility and a lot of respect for their time. Like I said earlier, those that showed that they were able to get their job done, we left them alone. And they could work on their own terms. They want to work, you know, at midnight. They want to work on the weekend. They want to work from Spain because they've been dying their whole life to spend a month there. As long as they're getting their work done, right? Um, and so part of what came out of that was our phenomenally advantageous customer service, because our competitors have cust- had customer service where, you know, you get like a auto response. Someone will get back to you in 24 hours. Uh, whereas fast Spring, we were responding, you know, 11 o'clock on Saturday night christmas day all throughout the day and i don't have to ask anybody to work those hours it's just they cared and they appreciated how they were treated and they were we also hired the kind of people that you know they'd sleep with their laptop in bed with them so to right. them it was like well i'm right. checking my email anyway so <laughs> and it if customer service was our largest advantage and still is so partly so the, because of the culture and how we treated people Takeaway is hire people that sleep with a computer yes awesome
0: next question
1: uh, so, John mentioned that you're uh, gainfully unemployed now, okay. and uh, one of your focuses is on angel investing and evaluating companies for investment. Uh, so, you know, when you come to a company or, uh, um, you know, founder, what are the top three criteria that, that, that you look for, and how are those criteria influenced uh, by your personal history? Yeah. Well, the first thing I do is I ask John about it. <laughs> no. and I always say, don't do it. Yeah. He says, I'm busy. Uh, Well, I think um, traction is probably number one. um, Because if you have enough traction, you have to worry less about number two, three, four, and five. Not always, but to some extent. Um, Having seasoned veterans behind a venture, you know, there's so many ventures I've been involved with, John's been involved with, where they've got a great idea. Maybe they even have traction, that's significant, but because these guys didn't come out of the industry, because they're not seasoned, they end up losing, and they lose because they just didn't know the pitfalls. They didn't know what not to do. And uh, you know, an investment that could have been a winner with a seasoned executive who would have known how to navigate things and deal with people in the industry might have otherwise been successful. Um, and I think you know, having an idea where someone sitting across the table from you can understand pretty quickly the value proposition that it's just not far-fetched. Like, I get why that makes sense and why people need that. In fact, uh, I've been working on a new potential venture myself in the mobile SaaS space, and I sat down with John the other day, and I said specifically, John, don't act like my friend. Act like a VC who's tough on me, and I want to know your thoughts on this. And his response, part of it anyway, was, I see a need. I see a clear need. He also said, you know, some of his concerns, but... You know, I want something where there's a clear need and it's not a big discussion to understand the value proposition or to to really believe that there's validation enough in the marketplace. So those are three.
0: So when you sit down with entrepreneurs as a VC or as an angel investor, do you see, or an advisor even, are you seeing consistent mistakes that young people make? Like are there things that you're like, oh, there it is again? Um, and I'm just wondering for you know if it's if you're seeing the same mistakes over and over, it's probably informational for these folks.
1: Yeah. I think one mistake is following the headlines. Yeah. So we all think we're supposed to be raising millions of dollars in venture capital and be on tech crunch and this and that. And I think that's a wrong way to go about it in most people's cases. Because what you're doing when you're looking at venture capital is you're trying to set you're really setting something up to fit the needs of the venture capitalists and their portfolios. Um, so uh you're also creating a business that is like uh uh, the clock starts ticking we talked about earlier that the easiest way to fail is to run out of money well you start getting this burn rate you get this pressure uh things aren't going the way you expect which is usually how it all goes and then what what kind of situation are you in how are you going to get out of it how are you going to stay sustaining are you going to be taken advantage of by your investors when you work with angel investors you tend not to have that same amount of pressure and you're not giving up generally as much control. Um, and uh, it, it's an easier situation to facilitate when things get difficult. Not in every situation. There are exceptions. Um, or doing it through sort of bootstrapping like I've done a few times um, where you know it's not a lot of money. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's some friends and family. Um, but uh, the other problem with venture capital that a lot of the entrepreneurs seem to Not paying enough attention to is, yeah, it's great when you see this headline that such and such exciting company raised $30 million. Well, guess what? They're not going to be able to sell unless they get to a value of like $300 million, which works for the venture capitalist who's got these numbers like, well, I just have to hit one in 10 or whatever it is. But what about the founder or the employees who would have been happy to sell for? $50 million, $100 million, and would have been wealthy and everybody would have been happy, huge success. Well, they might not be able to do that anymore, not until their investors are happy. So, you know, who are you building the business for? Um, And also, you want to be able to control things when they don't go well uh, so that if you have a vision, you can stay stay true to it um, and do what you ultimately plan to do. Um, So...
0: Yeah, I agree with the chasing the headlines, kind sort of trying to fight yeah. and, fighting last year's war. And I think when, you know, there are companies where venture capital is a good fit. I think in those cases, it's really important to make sure that your definition of success as an entrepreneur matches the, the venture capitalist definition of success, right? Because if yeah. your 50 million is a great outcome for you and they're like, we're not going to let you sell this company for 50 million, that's something you want to know ahead of time. Yeah. I certainly don't want to figure that out when they tell you you can't sell your business. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I'd say, you know, another, another thing I run into a lot Is a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they think their idea is the best thing in the world. uh, But, you know, as soon as somebody else comes out with something similar, oh, you know, game over. (laughs) And, you know, if you think about it, just looking at the past companies we've been involved with, so many of them were products and services that there were alternatives for years. Microsoft gave
0: our product away. Right. Or bundled it for free, I should say. Yeah. And people would constantly
1: say that to us. But what about Microsoft? Yeah. What about them? For free or it came into Windows or VNC, there was Remember free options. Um <laughs> and uh, you know, look at uh, Picasa. There were like fifty photo organizers, but Picasa did it differently. So if you can kind of make your mark and do the same kind of thing where the value propositions there and the opportunities there, but do it in a different way that really makes a lot of sense. You don't have to be turned off by the fact that there's competitors and the fact that this industry's, an industry's been around forever. Um, you just have to do it better for the customers, and, and you can still win just the same. In a lot of cases, uh, you're better off that way than trying to you know, revolutionize some new market, and you know, the odds are much lower. Yep. I've been down that road. Now, I, I love the competition. Remember in the
0: old days with WebEx? and be, A good competitor makes you better. Like, if you've ever played tennis, and I'm not a very good tennis player, but if you're, if you're a decent tennis player and you play with somebody who sucks, you're not a good tennis player anymore, right? You're running around the court going, what happened to my game? You're better when you're competing with somebody who's good. So embrace that. Just, you know, make sure you beat them. We'll take the next question.
1: So I know in your, in your bio you mentioned that at FastSpring you strove for a 100% uh, recurring revenue model. Uh, I guess, what steps did you take at the company to really kind of uh, solidify your uh, in the revenue stream and really kind of create uh, consistent and loyal customers? Yeah, so it wasn't exactly 0%. Our churn, so about, at the time, say, 2,200 customers, was 0.2% a month, or 0.6% a quarter, if I recall. Um, and uh, that was a pretty unheard of churn, and we also had some pretty unheard of statistics. I remember we did one of those uh, net rating scores, and you know they talked to our customers to figure out uh, how satisfied our customers were. One of the key questions they asked is, "How likely are you to like refer the somebody you like to this this service provider?" And I remember them telling us, and I don't have a lot of experience with this kind of data. I haven't dealt with that before, but they said, you know, some scoring system the. The average software company was 35 and Apple was like in the 50s and we were in the 70s. And I, I was pretty proud of that. And uh, the reason we didn't lose customers is because we didn't give any room for competitors to have advantages over us that would be sustainable. So even though our industry started in 1994 for FastSpring when Digital River came out and they eventually went public and they were a billion-dollar company we had to compete with... Um, They left some big holes in the marketplace. And so, our advantage was basically to have similar technology, but have it, or similar functionality, but be next generation technology. So, none of this dinosaur, clunky, old, you know, inflexible technology. Um, To have pricing that was not excessive like the competition, but reasonable and just made sense for the value proposition. And then, more than anything, not have customer service that's awful or okay or good, but absolutely phenomenal, knock-your-socks-off kind of uh, customer service. And we accomplished all those things with very little money and very few people just by having a different approach and a different culture. We used to get uh, people, uh, clients saying things like, working with FastSpring is the best customer service experience in my life in any industry. There was one guy that said, I felt like I just went to the spa. And we're just doing payment processing for software vendors. Pretty boring (laughs) business. We put them on the website. Um, and uh, you know, so we were able. So on the price side, you wouldn't switch away. So all, we get client. We would get clients that would switch from every competitor uh, that we had, and I'm talking about like 12 plus competitors because this industry had been a while, around for a while. But nobody would ever leave FastSpring, with very very rare exception. It's because, well, you're not going to get lower price. So we said, well, we don't want to put our price, like we can make more money, we might be leaving more money on the table, but we didn't want to have pricing where we had to spend half our time getting the clients and the other half trying to keep them and trying to win them back and things like that. And we also, because our overhead was so low, we didn't need to charge as much. And we also didn't have the pressure from, like I Wall Street, you know, caring about our margins like Digital River did being a publicly traded company. Um, so price we made to a point as a strategy that it's like, it really didn't make sense to switch away. I mean, you could do bare bones, like use PayPal, and you'd lose all the functionality but save some money, but you weren't saving that much money. Or use your own merchant account, do your own processing. You'd only save a little bit, but you'd have to do all the work. Um, and then customer service, once you got used to our customer service, you knew, I mean, we happened to be in an industry where customer service was particularly bad. Um, and you knew what you were getting into if you had been in the software space for a while, uh, and you were never going to get customer service as good as that. You could, you could, you know, they might, they might try. It might get, you know, it might be good. It could be great, but never like the experience you were having with Fast. Because you can't, you can't have it any better. Uh, we were, we were just doing things to a point. And there's companies that, you know, Zappos, for example. Uh, I was there recently getting a little tour, and they were telling me how they take some of their best customers and they'll send people to, like, clean their house. That's the kind of loyalty they want from their customers or do other services for them because they just go absolutely above and beyond. And you guess, guess what? Nobody can compete with that. You can't provide better service than that. And that was part of our strategy, and that's why nobody ever left because of the combination of those three things. It was a pretty strong combo. Awesome. So we'll take the last student question, and then I
0: have a final question. So you're an entrepreneur in resident at Ideal Lab since after having started an e-commerce company in college. So what motivated you to take your first steps as an entrepreneur in college instead of following the trend of going to uh, working for a big corporation?
1: That's a good and relevant question. Uh, Well, I had three possibilities. Uh, So first of all, I absolutely didn't want to get a job. Um, I had risen as an intern to what I felt like was the heights of finance. And I had seen that even those at the top who I had so much respect for still had limited control over their success. And part of why is because they're picking stocks. And you always think, oh, well, that guy knows who These guys know what they're doing. But those guys, no. Uh, Everybody's more or less guessing. There are a few exceptions. Um, But uh, so that was part of it. And also, I didn't want to be in a role, in a job, uh, in finance, for example, where I felt like it didn't use a lot of my skills Like I'm sure I would have been good at it But I, I could tell, and I also got feedback from other people My skill set covered a lot of different areas Which is great for an entrepreneur You want to be good at a whole lot of things at once um, you got to still be able to focus but, uh, And so, uh, let's see I thought about going into real estate development I thought about actually opening a nightclub um, Ooh, don't do that. Yeah. Please. And then I thought about doing one of these dot-coms. And I remember talking to my entrepreneur professor about it. He's like, Dan, nightclub? He's like, you realize someone's going to have to sweep the floor? You're going to have to deal with this and that? I was like, yeah, you're right. Uh, the real estate thing, uh, it just didn't hold compared to the dot-com opportunity. And the dot-com thing, and this goes for starting company out of school, It's like, you know what, if the damn thing fails, you learn so much that you can use for the rest of your career, and I've been doing that, that it's like, you know, when you're that young, you don't have much to lose, and you give it a shot, and so what if you fail? Um, Who knows what you'll build next? And these entrepreneurship ventures are really a numbers game. It's like, if you want to succeed, it's not about having the greatest idea ever and putting everything into that indefinitely. It's about trying different things, just like we did in marketing. So I did three at once at one point, like we said. I also started various ventures. Some worked, some didn't. And a lot of the really successful entrepreneurs, you only hear about their successes, but how many failures did they have, maybe at the same time or before that, that brought them that experience or that they had to go through to get the odds in their favor to have a success? Dan, this is a great way to
0: kick off the Spring Series. Thank you so much for coming out. Appreciate it.